0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our dependence on air travel was sharply put into focus on 9-11 as planes were weaponized. But did you know that Hawaii was one of two dozen U.S. cities that had an emergency management system in place that went from training drills to a real world terrorist event? Salvatore Lanzolati was head of Honolulu's emergency medical services under then Mayor Jeremy Harris. This weekend's 9-11 anniversary stirred his memory of our state of readiness to deal with a terrorist attack back then. But it also set the framework to prepare for other potential disasters and biological attacks and high security events like the APEC meeting of world leaders that was held here in the islands. The threats are still out there and it stands to reason we keep our resiliency in check. Here's Sal.
1: We were physically and mentally prepared. And that was the the thing that saved the day for us, because we had been working on this for about four years. So we had written plans for a response to a terrorist attack. And so we began to put those plans into place.
0: And how was it that we were able to have this plan?
1: Well, President Clinton had a directive, uh, 39, in 1996, because we had had a series of events the atlantic olympics bombing in 96 we had the murray building in oklahoma in 95 siren attack in 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 tokyo we had a a bomb in the the parking garage the world trade center in 93 so so in the 90s there was a lot of this activity and that's not even talking about the stuff that was overseas uh you know that that occurred uh, uh you know in the uh the coal, the USS Cole, got uh, bombed. Uh, we had a series of attacks, uh, you know, throughout the, the 90s. And so the country, in fact, in 98, there was an explosion in the embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. People were killed. So there were all these concerted attacks, both international you know, uh, terrorism, and uh, and then at home. So Clinton uh, uh, put this proposal in, and then uh, it became known as the Nunn-Lugar-Dominici Act legislation for defense against weapons of mass destruction. We were lucky enough to be one of the first 25 cities. And uh, we went after it because Honolulu was the business and financial and governmental, higher education, cultural center of the state uh, at the time, like 75% of the population of, of our state lived here, uh, uh, close to 90,000 people. Um, and, and if I may, uh, we had, like, the, the reason why we needed to protect and have an integrated response, well, we had 11 million tons of shipments coming in to our harbors worth $10 billion a year. Uh, our international airport, we had, you know, like 67,000 passengers a day. Uh, third 24 million a year annual tourism 11.6 billion dollars if we destroy that our state is in bad shape so for for all the many many reasons besides just the health of the population it was important for us to get better prepared and be prepared and so we went after this grant and got it
0: so share with our listeners you know that day uh Ah. airspace uh, was yeah. was, well, uh, th- was that clamped. day
1: we had again fire police emergency services department civil defense and on this uh, metropolitan medical response system that that uh, that, that defense act uh, allowed us to put together uh, we get like our first grant was about six hundred thousand we had uh, uh, not just and it was supposed to be for cities but but because we're an island we had uh, a much 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 more robust and based on what they wanted people to do, a much more integrated response. So we had the State Department of Health, State Department of Civil Defense, uh, besides our own. We had the National Guard. We had the Pacific Command, military. We had the FBI, Tripler Army Medical, the Hospital Association. So all of these people were had been working together, and now we were sitting and we knew each other. And one of the things we heard from other people uh, afterwards at conferences and stuff was, uh, and and had been written down about the problems at Atlanta and Oklahoma, and in and the World Trade Center. The first time, there were nobody uh, knew people personally, and so there weren't this, there wasn't an integrated response. And you'd get these phone calls, and you didn't know how much and how many. And we just sat around the table, and then the mayor just deployed uh, the personnel. The police were there to at the mass transit assets, our airports, our harbors, so you know all the things that needed to be taken care of you know, the police knew they had to go check out, uh, make sure that nothing happened to our uh, infrastructure, you know, our, our water, our electricity, our fuel uh, refineries, our, you know, fuel points, our power plants, all these things, you, you know, Waikiki, mm-hmm. our business district and, and uh, downtown.
0: If you could talk about the, the airspace. So we're doing all that,
1: you know, we're doing all that and feeling good about the fact that we we know what we have to do. And then, we find out that I think it's about 16 flights from Asia had been diverted from the mainland destinations because everything on the mainland was closed, all the airports. And they were going to be diverted to Honolulu um, or to Hawaii. And I think also there were about six flights from the mainland that were headed here. And so these could be diverted maybe to the neighbor islands, and I'm not sure how many of them were. But the ones coming in from Asia... Uh, Admiral Blair, he was worried about the military assets, Pearl Harbor, Hickam, Schofield, Kaneohe. We were worried about all of the business district and everything else that I just mentioned about Waikiki and all. So uh, we didn't want them there, and so the, both the mayor and, uh, and and Admiral Blair were talking to whoever they could, the FAA. But they found out that uh, when you know the pilots wanted to come into Honolulu because. If something happened, Honolulu had the most resources, obviously. And so they were they were going to come in. And so around 7 o'clock in the morning, our Air National Guard sent up the F-15 jets to accompany all flights coming in. The jets were—they had the ability to launch air-to-air missiles if they had to. So throughout the day until maybe early afternoon, we we were, you know— and in the emergency operating center, just kind of holding our breath and getting updates about these flights, because from what I understood was the flight had to give the um, the FAA had to give the military their path coming into Honolulu, and if they deviated one degree from that path, there would be severe response from the military.
0: Right, because uh, at that point, uh, yeah. at that point, and, we didn't know what was going no on. You didn't want to take any chances
1: right no one knew no one and and because of of the horrendous acts on the mainland we could not afford to to make to allow that to happen here so there was no reason to feel that it was going to happen but then in 1982 i believe there was on a pan am flight there was a gentleman by the name of mohammed rashid a palestinian and as they were coming in from japan from tokyo into honolulu he set off a bomb and killed a 15-year-old Japanese student and injured about 15 of the uh, other Japanese nationals on the plane. So it wasn't like it was unheard of that something could happen, uh, and, and that it could happen in our, you know, in our wonderful island here.
0: Yeah, in our airspace.
1: In our airspace.
0: Because of that experience, we did have foresight to apply for this grant. And to go through the exercises so that we were prepared that day.
1: Yes, we did field practice and field studies. We did one called, uh, I think it was 1999, I/O crisis, where the event was that a sarin attack had happened in the, in the uh, Aloha Stadium, and we had like a hundred mock patients, and we had Tripler Hospital setting up tents, and you know, and, and everybody knew their job, and so that was, and that was the whole idea. The whole idea of this preparation was how to integrate, instead of having all these separate agencies and then stumbling over each other when something happened, that we would practice our responses so that when something happened, we would work as a unit together. And, of course, we, we see, for example, and I'm not trying to throw stones, but we see what happened in, on January 6th in, in Washington, D.C., when all of those different agencies that were, pu- that were supposed to be taken care of, uh, the National Guard, the, the Capitol Police, the, the city police, the, the Army, uh, uh, somehow all kinds of communications were being missed, and we didn't get a good response to the insurrection, and bad things happened. There's no excuse for that.
0: Talk about the preparation that we did have in place here, because you had to plan for mass casualties.
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, we had to plan for initially 500, and that wasn't too scary. But then they, they asked us to, to respond to the, a mass casualty of 10% of the population, which would have been about 100,000 people. And, of course, I talked to the people over in our State Department of Health because, unlike a lot of other major cities, we don't have a Department of Health. So once something would be biological, it would go immediately over to the, the Department of Health. And so uh, they told me, well, any given day, we only have a couple of hundred beds that are open in the whole state, which meant then we had to start planning big, which meant field hospitals. And we've seen a lot of those go up now with the pandemic. And, and the neat thing about those is that the plan that I found that the Army had was they went up, and I think it was uh, sets of 50 or 100 so that you'd put a, 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 you know, if you needed 100, fine, and then next you'd put another 100, another 100. And then then that way they could be broken down once you didn't need them anymore. So we had all these plans, and uh, we were putting those in play. And, of course, the Red Cross was helping us with, like, uh, sheets and blankets and things like that. And everyone at the time was very, very helpful in terms of resources and wanting to help. It was a really unified country, and uh, saddens me that it's not like that today. But one day I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, oh, my God, what happens if I have this whole thing set up and I got a field hospital and I got, you know, beds and I've got pharmaceuticals and and the doctors and nurses don't want to work in these things or they come and they don't know what to do with a chemical or uh, how to treat a chemical or, an, or a biologic event. A couple of weeks later, I was at a conference. And Kevin Tonit, who was from the HHL, Human Services in the feds, he was in charge of this home, homeland security before it was an agency. I said to him, Kevin, and I explained, you know, we've got to look into this. And he said, write it up. I'll fund it. So he funded a study that I did with uh, all the doctors and nurses in the state of Hawaii. And we, I asked them about what they knew and what they could recognize and what they could treat. In terms of the biologics and the chemicals that were on the CDC list, the only people that really knew about a lot of these biologics were people at tripler because they were army and they had been around the world, and so they they knew about Ebola and some of these other things but but not you know local doctors don't knew, don't know about that don't know how to treat it, might not even be able to see what it is and for bombs, sure, everybody ninety percent right. or so with ninety two ninety four percent they said sure, we'll come and help but when it got down to when well, you come and help, if it's a biologic, only 50% of the docs, 53 or 54, and the nurses the same. And you need them to be trained. And that means that how do they get trained and what's the best way? And we we worked on all of that.
0: That was Sal Anzalotti, former head of Honolulu's Emergency Medical Services Department. Uh, he was talking about a readiness. He he was called to the Civil Defense Operating Center in the basement of the Frank Fosse Municipal Building on the morning of 9-11. And since that time, the city has worked on improving plans to respond to other threats like SARS and anthrax. Lanzalotti says early on, the city also had the first PCR mobile laboratory, similar to what the military used. And if PCR sounds familiar, yep, PCR tests are the gold standard for COVID testing. And while we still have the capacity for mobile testing, the current director of Honolulu's, Honolulu's EMS department, Dr. Jim Ireland, He says that technology has advanced so much in 20 years that the units are much smaller and can be integrated in some of our EMS units. And the idea of field hospitals, well, it's part of our COVID preparedness should the cases begin to overwhelm our hospitals. We continue to hear from listeners about their 9-11 memories. Matt Sutton was an active-duty Marine Corps captain assigned to Headquarters Marine Corps at the Pentagon Annex, located about a quarter of a mile away from where Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. He remembers the morning of the attack like it was yesterday.
2: It was a normal morning, and one of my colleagues uh, usually watched the news in the morning on his computer, and he made a comment that a aircraft had impacted one of the buildings at the world trade center we thought it was maybe possibly a you know general aviation small aircraft but that was soon followed by the second aircraft impacting the other tower so we immediately knew that it was not an accident that there was some type of terrorist attack that took place in new york and we even i think made some comments you know about possible security implementation in Washington, D.C., but that was all kind of in jest. So I decided to go downstairs after a while, and there's a small store on the first floor of the Navy Annex, and purchased a bottle of water, shared what we had saw on television with the proprietor of that store. He had not heard anything, but as we were talking about that, we could hear a, a loud, it was obviously some uh, aircraft, low-flying it seemed like it was passing right over the Navy annex, which it was. Apparently, the Flight 77 hijackers were tracking Columbia Pike as a navigation to the Pentagon. And as a matter of fact, for later on, I heard that Flight 77 almost clipped the end of our building as it glided into the Pentagon. So when I heard the aircraft, I immediately exited outside and I did see the, the impact. And with my bottle of water, I ran down there to see what assistance I could do. Uh, Actually, I dropped that bottle of water because I felt it was slowing me down, but I wish I would have kept that. We certainly needed water helping victims out of the building, guiding them away from the building. And um, it didn't take long before the, the fire got pretty, pretty heavy where we couldn't even get close to the building at that point. That's about when the Arlington Fire Department arrived. So all those who helped us initially assist, we left the immediate area of the building and stood along the edge of South Washington Boulevard, which is in between the Pentagon and Arlington Cemetery. So that's pretty much where we were. I also remember that people started talking about a second aircraft based upon the World Trade Center. And indeed, a second aircraft was orbiting above the Pentagon, causing quite a bit of alarm, but we later learned it was a FEMA aircraft surveying the area. You know, thank goodness. So at that point, it pretty much turned from an initial first responder to what amounted to a recovery operation. So eventually, the Army Old Guard arrived to assist with recovery as civilian search and recovery expertise arrived on scene along with FBI, uh, federal aviation. All the letter agencies started to converge on the Pentagon. Anyway, there was a group of us Marines that noticed there was a Marine Corps flag up on the upper level of the Pentagon. So we made the assumption that there were Marines that were either trapped or needed to be recovered. So we remained behind for several days. We were able to enter the Pentagon on two different locations over the next three days, we recovered many of the deceased. But after the 13th, all the Navy Marine Corps personnel were accounted for. There were no victims in the Pentagon. Towards the end of the day, um, when you see the iconic flag unrolled over the side of the Pentagon, we had just exited the building with a, a litter, um, a deceased person. and. President George Bush arrived and greeted us, thanking us for you know, the last few days of our efforts. And I'll never forget looking in his eyes and kind of realizing that there was gonna be a different world after that point. And uh, after 20 years hindsight, certainly has proven that it has indeed changed the world. So none of us knew this at the time but it was almost a miracle. The silver lining was that at that time where the aircraft struck the Pentagon, they were just completing a major renovation. It was the first section to be renovated. And that renovation included reinforcing the structure of the building with Kevlar and replacing the windows with non-shatterable glass. And that Kevlar reinforcement with steel prevented the aircraft from probably going completely through the building out the other side, and probably prevented a lot of injuries. So some of these foresight and implementation of that was a miracle in itself. Because of the renovation, that portion of the Pentagon really wasn't completely populated yet. You know, thank goodness. It was virtually deserted, you know, except for the 125, uh, those unfortunate ones that had moved into that section by then. And lastly, I've never before and since experienced such a sense of unity that that tragedy brought everyone together. You know, it's just almost impossible to describe that. But you know, the unity of at that moment at, at, on the site and afterwards was just remarkable. And, you know, I hope we could get back to that point as a country.
0: That was Matt Sutton who retired from the Marine Corps after 30 years. He now lives in Honolulu. And Big Island resident Howard Shapiro shared how 911 touched him. He wrote a song to remember those who died and to spread healing in our community.
3: I was really moved to write this song. We remember them after watching the uh, memorial service on September 14th, 2001 at the Washington National Cathedral. After the memorial as I was reflecting on what I had seen and heard. These words echoed in my mind. We remember them real distinctly. I got a piece of paper and a pen, and a song was created. This was the most difficult song that I ever wrote, because even now as I think about it, I remember the tears that were coming down my cheeks while I was writing it. I was feeling so much hurt and a profound sense of sadness for the families who had just lost loved ones. It was my hope that it would be shared at Memorial services during the first anniversary on September 11th. It was a interesting experience recording it because I knew that others would be recording songs about September 11th attacks. And I didn't know what I could add, but I was just felt compelled to do it. And, uh, recorded the song at Lava Track Studio in Waimea on the uh, island of Hawaii, where I live. Charles Michael Brotman was a recording engineer and helped arrange the song. My friend Lonnie Starr recorded vocals with me. After I recorded it, I contacted different organizations working with the families who had lost loved ones and sent them copies, and I was very honored that a number of them told me that they used it at their memorial services. I also sent a copy or copies to a organization working in New York City with the families of the firefighters, police, EMT personnel who had died and I sent, I think, 400 copies to that organization and they said they were going to try to get copies to all the family members which really touched me very much. And right now, at this time, the song even has a deeper meaning for me. Today, I not only share it with people who lost loved ones on September 11th, but with all the people in our country who have lost friends and family during the pandemic. You know, it's such a hard time for them and, uh, you know, all of us. And it's my hope that it still can bring some comfort and solace to them and others. I appreciate that I was able to share it with you. The light of love cannot be diminished by the darkness of hate. In time, what will be remembered will be the kindness and caring of people from across the nation and around the world.
0: That was Big Island resident Howard Shapiro. Thank you for the feedback. Email us at talkback at org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter. Or call or talk back line seven nine two eighty two seventeen. We remember them, their smiles, their
3: tears. We remember them, their hopes, their fears. As mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, we
0: remember them for Honolulu Civil Beach reality check today we take a look at some changes to the school board reporter Suwan Lee joins us today good morning Suvon good morning so yeah everybody's you know thinking about the kids in school you know as we get this uh, academic year underway uh, but your story today focuses on uh, on a new face on on the board
4: That's right. This is uh, uh, referring to the Hawaii Board of Education, which is the policy-making body for the DOE or the overseer of the Department of Education. That is, and there's nine voting members on the Board of Ed and Three of the members' terms expired this past June, so the um, the newest member is Lila Berg, who's the, um, actually an interim appointment, meaning she still has to be confirmed by the Senate to fulfill a full three-year term. But for this school year, at least, she is on the board, the newest member.
0: So they'll take up her um, her hearing then. What in the f- in January when they resume mm-hmm. session?
4: So the way this works is that board members um, on the Hawaii BOE are, first of all, they're uh, nominated by the governor, Um, they're appointed positions, so he has to nominate them. And then the Senate, the Hawaii Senate, has to approve and confirm these appointments. So because the Hawaii legislature isn't in session right now, they'll be in session in early 2022, they will have to um, have a full hearing to um, actually ask um, Ms. Berg questions and um, have an opportunity for the public to weigh in. So once that happens, then yes, she would be subject to confirmation for a three-year term.
0: Now, Lila Berg, though, uh, uh, maybe uh, someone who our listeners are familiar with because she was a former legislator.
4: That's right. She was. She was a former House representative for um, District 18, which covers East Honolulu, Um, and that was from 2004 to 2010. So she has uh, served in the House. So she has that experience as a lawmaker. She's also a retired educator. She was a principal of Kailua High School, a vice principal at Molokai High and Intermediate back then. Um, and she told me yesterday in an interview that she's just really passionate about education. Um, currently, she just is a volunteer on uh, several boards, and she is really interested in sort of contributing to the conversation and asking the tough questions that board members often tend to do of the DOE as far as their policies and their um, just the way that they're conducting the school system right now. And I know a lot of people have a lot of questions right now about some of the protocols and the consistency of education in all the schools. So she really wants to engage in that conversation, she told me.
0: And she replaces Dwight Takeno
4: right. So Dwight Tekeno was a board member whose term had expired this past summer. And so once he decided to step down, she is basically his replacement. Now, Dwight did serve as a holdover appointment for the last few months. Um, I did notice, though, at the last board meeting, he was rather quiet. Um, I, I guess, you know, he, he, he knew he's kind of stepping down. And so he wanted other people to sort of voice their um, um, opinions. But yes, Dwight is out. And Lila Berg is in
0: and you also mentioned in your article that uh, the board chair Catherine Payne uh, that her term expired also this summer Uh, but she's well what's her status
4: Right, right. Uh, yeah, there is kind of a lot going on, a lot of moving parts here. But Catherine Payne is the board chairwoman. Um, she um, joined the board in 2018, also a Governor Ige appointment. And so her three-year term technically expired this past June. So Ige did renominate her in April, which is when the 2021 session was still in session, right? However, For mysterious reasons, her renomination was pulled, it was withdrawn. So Chair Payne is actually a holdover appointment, technically, and she is willing to serve out and she is willing to continue serving on the board. So she will be in place at least through next June. Um, I so there there is a lot kind of going on with the makeup and the constitution of the board right now. But suffice to say, um Chair Payne will be will still be there. Um, Lila Berg is the newest member, and so far this is the makeup of the board as we know it as of now.
0: Okay, all right, and then uh, I guess we wait till then the opening of session. Um to get to the uh, confirmation hearings with the Senate.
4: Absolutely. And the board is still meeting on a monthly basis, the next meeting of which will be this coming Thursday. So we will we will see what kind of questions they have for the DOE this time. <laughs>
0: All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Suvon.
4: You bet. Thank you.
0: That was education reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Read her story online mm-hmm. at civilbeat.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, honolulumuseum.org.
5: Share a little aloha this September. With Foodland's annual matching gift program, your donation is matched by Foodland and the Western Union Foundation. When you're at the register of a Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farm store anytime this September, remember Hawaii Public Radio and give aloha.
0: September is National Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Awareness Month. The CDC says nine out of every thousand school-aged children in the U.S., Suffers from the effects of alcohol consumed during their mother's pregnancy. The Hawaii FASD Action Group was founded in 2016 by Dr. Ann Yabusaki, a psychologist and family therapist. The conversations Russell SubiONO spoke with her and with Sina Pili, a mother of a child with the disorder, and the leader of a parent support group.
6: For those who aren't familiar with FASD, can you share what the disorder is and who it affects?
7: What it is is it's a brain disorder. And so when the fetus is developing early on, if alcohol is introduced, that can interrupt the the brain development of that baby. It can be. It just does the probability. Not everybody is affected. And so when the child develops, we often see it in the early stages, perhaps. But many of us also see it when they begin school because there are more challenges to the brain. And oftentimes, it becomes more prominent when they go to the middle school. You can see it progressing throughout the childhood, and that's what makes it difficult to
6: diagnose. It's very apparent that alcohol impacts the, the fetus in a negative way. Is there an amount of alcohol that someone who is pregnant can safely consume to avoid impacting their baby? Or, or is there like a, a line where it's too much
7: well, you know, um, been, people have been trying to answer that question and there is no definitive. So we just say no alcohol. If you're planning to get pregnant, don't drink alcohol. I, I just try to keep it simple for folks.
6: How does FASD differ from autism?
7: Autism is what, what we simply say is a language disorder or an interaction disorder because of communication. We see that in people with FASD. There are a lot of what we call crossover or crossover kind of diagnosis or comorbid diagnosis in the FASD, child with FASD or the individual with FASD, um, they are all they're very friendly. Uh, they can talk, they can communicate. What is difficult is that sometimes they cannot understand what is being communicated to them because of the brain disorder. So although they might appear friendly and Uh, outgoing, we have to ask, what did you understand? What did you, for example, what did you read? What did you hear me say? To see if they can understand. They can possibly parrot back what you said, which is fine, but they forget what you said the next day or the next two hours because the information might not have gotten into the memory banks because basically the connections between the brain cells have been somewhat disrupted. And so in that disruption, uh, the processing speed of understanding language is slower. So although we say there are features of autism, there could be features of autism. It also, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has a different way of presenting as well. So differential diagnosis or changing, finding out what is going on is really takes multiple disciplines, a psychologist, for example, a pediatrician, a neurologist, all of us have to kind of put our heads together and say, is this the phenomenon that we're seeing? And even teachers and parents.
6: Do you have any idea of how many people are living with FASD in Hawaii or raising children with FASD?
7: Yeah, you know, because it's misdiagnosed and misunderstood, the research is showing that about 5% are ever diagnosed. And one and in 2018, there was a study in that one in 20 first graders were affected by FASD. And in Hawaii, if you take that number or that you know percentage, about five percent first graders, which is one in every classroom, you might project of the of the 174,000 students say, for example, in Hawaii school, approximately 8,700 may have an FASD, and yet far fewer are diagnosed.
6: Sina, can you share with us your story? You have a child with FASD. What kind of challenges did you face at the start, and how have you overcome them?
8: From the start, when he was an infant, we noticed he was laying next to a niece that was the same age, and we noticed that he was delayed. So it took him longer to lift his head, took him longer to crawl, it took him longer to walk, and as he got older, he was very active, always moving constantly, but he was delayed in a lot of things. And he was hospitalized at Kapiolani, and we went through this referral process and looking up birth records. We adopted our son, looking up birth records and confirming information. And then finally, we got a diagnosis from developmental delay to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I had never heard of FASD before But it was a very sad moment in our lives because everything that was presented to us in the information basically said that our son was not going to be successful, that he was going to have all these challenges, that his future would more likely end up in prison. And my husband and I just, you know, it was hard for us to accept it. It was hard for us to kind of, go through it. We made some major changes in our in our life, meaning I moved my work because I said, told myself, I'm my son's not going to be one of those statistics. We are going to intervene now and we are going to support him in the way that he needs. So a lot of the organizations that we were referred to, they were very helpful with providing services specific to like his hyperactivity, his focus and whatnot, but they did not truly understand what FASD was. And when he was placed in school, for example, you know, that was a hard thing for us because we, he looked normal. He didn't look, you know, like he had a disability. He looked normal, but it was hard for us to explain to them, this is a brain-based disability. He's not going to be able to change his brain. We have to change his environment. So for like the first couple of years, it was a battle for my husband and I to change the mentality of anyone who worked with him to say, hey, You guys got to accept that he's hyper. Like, this is him. He's going to need to run. He's going to need to stand up and walk around. And we've gotten better with it, and the people working with him are more understanding, and they have helped him in the way that he needs. But we've also looked at it as, okay, we know he's going to academically struggle. We know that for a fact, but we're not going to let that be the focus of who he is what we are gonna do is we're gonna push him in his strength. We wanna highlight that and use that to his benefit. We kind of wanna flip, you know, the mindset of individuals with FASD to say, hey, there are a lot of strengths for them and we can utilize those strengths for them and concentrate on, on that to build who they are. And so we have seen that as we spread awareness of FASD to people who in school that work with our son or family members, that they, they change themselves to create a positive environment for our son.
6: For families out there who may have a child with FASD, from your experience, what's the most important thing that they should know?
8: That it's okay for them not to be the straight-A student in school, that it's okay that they're going to struggle, look at what their strengths are, because I feel like when we do that, we're putting the barrier on the individual, and we are creating that mentality of them being a failure, of them not being able to achieve things. So accept that FASD comes with this, but focus on what their strength is, so that you're creating a better future for them, offer their strength, and also a better life for them that they can enjoy now.
6: Can you share with our audience what kind of resources are available for families caring for a child with FASD?
8: We had parent and children together. They did home visits and they actually placed our son in a preschool and brought like occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy to that school. We also had one word early intervention through Department of Health. They did the same thing as well and they actually were the care coordinators for his services. That made the smooth transition for him into Department of Education school because then he received special education services and all of the speech and other therapy services kind of just moved over with him to his school.
7: Um, Many parents struggle because they have to teach the environment about what helps their children. (laughs) So what I've also been interested in is creating FASD-informed services. We might have, um, you know, foster care services. We might have intensive in-home services for families to help. But many of them are unaware of the struggles or the challenges, I should say, for, of children with FASD. And they, they need education and awareness about how to change the environment, how to interpret behavior and not punish the behavior, but how do we challenge, challenge ourselves to look at the behavior in a way that can be utilized for the child's success. It's been a struggle for us to kind of educate all our systems, Department of Education, Department of Health, Department of Human Services where they have adoptive and, uh, and child welfare, foster kids, to, to help them understand that um, not to punish these kids but to be able to understand and be challenged to expand their under, you know uh, interventions
6: for these children
7: and that's FASD-informed services.
6: For Sina, from a mother's perspective, what more can the public do to help raise awareness of FASD?
8: To be kind to everyone. These individuals are going throughout the community, and like Dr. Yabusaki had shared, many are undiagnosed. And when we see these behaviors, we may think they're making those choices, but yet it's part of their brain disability. And so I would just say to be kind to everyone because you don't know what everyone's going through.
0: That was Dr. Ann Yabusaki and Sina Pili of the Hawaii Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Action Group. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information, check out the links on our website, uh, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
5: On the next Fresh Air, what happens when animals become criminals, at least in the eyes of humans? Somebody has to deal with bears who menace campsites, Indian elephants that trample crops and kill farmers, and birds that flock in flight paths near airports. We'll talk with science writer Mary Roach. Her new book is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Join us.
1: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
0: public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. Jewish community just marked Rosh Hashanah and is now marking the days of awe, a time of reflection at the start of the new year. It is the year 5782 on the Hebrew calendar and the second new year that has been celebrated during the pandemic. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Rabbi Jennifer Weiner of Honolulu's Temple Emmanuel about how services have changed during our ongoing battle with COVID-19. The
5: days of awe are a very special time in the Jewish calendar, and the Jewish calendar is is a little bit different than what, what the secular calendar is. We follow a, what's known as a lunisolar calendar, so we follow the moon for our month, yet we adjust to the seasons because our holidays are more or less agriculturally based. What's incredible about the Days of Awe is that it's 10 days, right as the fall is beginning, and it allows us to have a time of introspection and a time for us to do what's known as Kachbon HaNafesh, which means to take an inventory of our soul, which means that we think back to all of our actions from the past year, and we evaluate how we did on an individual basis. Then we go through a process and that process is called teshuva, and teshuva means from the Hebrew word to return, and the whole idea is that we are returning to the values of Torah, of Scripture, and to the ways of God, and that we have to ask for forgiveness from the people that we have wronged, and so we're supposed to be doing this process all year long, um, because we're not supposed to be saving it up, but most people kind of put things off until the very last minute, and so we have the month before, the Hebrew month of Elul, but we also have these 10 days of awe, starting with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and going through these 10 days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur being the Day of Atonement.
9: Thank you, first off, for that overview. You're welcome. It's, it's interesting to think of the idea of a new year. Yeah, In this particular moment in time, because this would be the second Jewish New Year that you've celebrated during the pandemic. Did you yes. expect and did your community expect to be here at this point? No, we didn't. You know, it's a huge
5: disappointment
9: to our community that we
5: cannot gather in person for our High Holy Day services. And yet people understand that the reason why we're online is to protect each other's health and safety. In Judaism, the value, the mitzvah, the the commandment is called pikuach nefesh, which means preserve one's soul. And it's also about preserving one's health and that we're responsible, not just for ourselves as an individual, but for each one of us, regardless of religion or faith or anything, so that by not gathering in a large group we are protecting each other.
9: What are some other ways that you have pivoted during the pandemic to continue to be in touch with each other and in touch with the community, but also ensure the safety of everyone participating? Mm -hmm.
5: So we are having a lot of online programs. Our services are all online. For instance, on Poor, not only are we going to be doing services, but we're gonna have discussion time online. We're also going to be having a story time for young people, like families with huts and early elementary school students or preschoolers who might be home during the day. We're just all trying to be able to offer different opportunities for different age groups and for different interests of being able to gather and gather online while still recognizing that what we're doing is very different than what we wish we could be doing at this
9: time. Hmm. I would say on the on the flip side of that, having a presence online does allow a wider range of people from Hawaii to participate in your services if they so choose. Mm-hmm. What would you say to people who might be interested in for these High Holy Days checking out what you have to offer or becoming more involved or wanting to learn more? Yeah.
5: By all means, please go to our website, which is www.saloha.com. That's S-H-A-L-O-H-A dot com, and click on one of the services, click on one of the opportunities and experiences that we're offering, and uh, become a part of the community. We welcome people of all different movements of Judaism, and we welcome people of all different faith groups, because our membership is not just people who are Jewish, it's people who are Jewish and their families and people who are interested in Judaism and learning more and maybe becoming Jewish. It's really a wonderful community that we have here in Honolulu, Hawaii at Temple Emanuel. I will also say that the pandemic has really changed the way that we, that we offer our services in that with Zoom, we can do um, counseling over Zoom. As, as clergy, we, we're going to be hybrid regardless of when we are able to gather in person again We're going to still continue to offer an online presence because we have people who cannot travel anymore at night, who don't drive. We have people who are on the mainland, but still want to keep in touch with the Emmanuel family because this is where they grew up. And so all they need to do is tune in. And and what the pandemic has shown us is a whole new world out there. I mean, from the progressive side of Judaism, meaning the reform, the the conservative, the reconstruction the branches that have branched out from those movements, I would say we are highly, highly encouraging people to become vaccinated for the sake of the idea that we find in Talmud, which is a recording of, of oral tradition, oral law, that we are responsible for each other. And Judaism says that you have to be safe. You have to provide not just for your health, but for someone else's health. The idea that we've always learned is that when you are establishing a Jewish community, there are three main things that you need to have according to the Talmud, the oral law. The first thing that you have to have is a cemetery for burying your dead. The second is a place of gathering. And the third is a physician. And so health is paramount to our beliefs. And it's not just health, but the choices that one makes in order for you to be a part of the community. We need to find a way, especially at this time of the Jewish High Holy Days, to find the means of asking each other for forgiveness and being able to learn how to once again work together. And that's really what this season is about.
0: That was Rabbi Jennifer Wiener with Temple Emmanuel, talking to The Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote. You can uh, find links to Temple Emmanuel's website on our website later today. it up for today. Tomorrow, we talk housing and race with Neil Milner on the Longview. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.